Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. So in this episode, we want to address a topic that is likely on everyone's minds right now, whether they're academics or not. We really are thinking about the back to school season. So um, there's a lot going on. And Judith, what are you thinking about all of this right now? Yeah, Erin, this is a really uh, important topic for me to address at some point. Um, I had been sort of listening to what people are saying about this for a little while with one ear, uh, but not really paying too much attention because uh, I would get very nervous all the time. And um, this week I got an email from my school district with some plans for the new school year. They have two different um, two different plans for the next school year, depending on where we're at in about a month when school is supposed to start here. They have an online plan and then they also have a in-person option. And I was really anxious for my kids to start going back to school. As I mentioned in the past, uh, my son is already back at school. And so I was really, you know, excited and looking forward to my daughter going back to school. It was and and I have kind of ignored everything that's coming from other places just because the idea of no school um, or virtual school has been so terrifying to me. And so when I read through the email that I got, the in-person plan has a lot of regulation and a lot of specifics, you know, ranging from like one way traffic in the hallways to like desks facing one way, six feet spread apart to, you know, specific rules about lunch and recess. And then of course, you know, the wearing the masks all day. And so I was reading through the email and I realized, you know, what people have been saying, um, it's not going to be the way that it was. There's not, you know, even going back to school is not going to be what it used to be. And so the reading this email, of course, I knew that because people have been saying that, you know, there's going to be like a new normal is going to look very different. Um, and I think like in the back of my mind, I still thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be normal. Maybe it'll be fine. And then I started picturing her in this environment and I just got really nervous about it and didn't really, that wasn't really what I had in mind for her. And so then I started, then I started paying more attention to this and started thinking about it more. And that's where, you know, you know, and since I've gotten that email, I've obviously talked to my husband about it. I've talked to my sister-in-law, but I still thought that, you know, you and I could maybe talk about this even more because I still have a lot to process with that. I think I still am coming to terms with the fact that, Yes, they might be going back to school, but it will look a lot different than, you know, what I had in mind and what the environment that I would like to see her in. And so, um, yeah, I thought, you know, it might be a good idea for us to kind of talk about this today. For sure. And in Michigan, especially, we thought we were sort of in the clear. I think there was a brief pause. We felt like things perhaps were under control but for our listeners who are outside of the United States, uh, Michigan is kind of strange with its weather. I'll put that out there. It gets very, very cold. Um, Judith, you can kind of speak to the Celsius. Can you put it out? I mean, I'm going to speak in Fahrenheit, but we have really cold winters here, okay? It can go down to uh, the teens, we call it. What is it in Celsius? How can you explain that to our global audience? Uh, the coldest it gets, like, it's 
oh, it's definitely below freezing for uh, for quite an amount of time. The lowest it probably gets is somewhere between like minus 15, minus 20, I would say, in Celsius. But that's very cold. Right. It is very cold. So um, in Michigan, when it starts to get nice out, people want to be outside. And it's almost like a rite of passage. We have the Memorial Holiday weekend and everyone's out. People want to be out doing things. And coming from a sort of logical point of view and perspective, I think people like you and I kind of really wondered how things were going to look after people started getting out and about. And the governor began opening businesses up slowly again, bars, things like that. And now we've seen this resurgence again, which is quite scary if you're following this and you're concerned, whether you are a parent, whether perhaps you have an aged relative. Um, I know my own mother is a senior with some health risk issues, so it's it's on the upswing again. And so I had looked up some interesting data, I guess, from the CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control in the United States, and I found a few interesting bullet points, which I wondered if these would put you at ease, why or why not. Um, children do appear to be at a lower risk for contracting uh, COVID-19 compared to adults. It says, while some children have been sick with COVID-19, adults make up nearly 95% of reported cases. Uh, The early reports suggest that children are less likely to get COVID-19 than adults. And when they do get it, they generally, generally have a less serious illness. And finally, as of July 21st, 2020, 6.6 of reported COVID-19 cases and less than 0.1% of COVID-19 related deaths are among children and adolescents less than 18 years of age in the U.S. So on the, you know, if it just glossed it over, that all sounds like kind of good news. But does any of that really set your mind at ease or what are some issues when you think about that data? It does somewhat, for sure. It makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I think, you know, there's some, like, there is some, like, anecdotal evidence, I think, that people like to bring up uh, in this situation for situations in which kids have spreaded. Uh, My big question about the statistics is always, is this a matter of, like, testing and how many people are being tested. So the question is always like, do we actually know how, because children are supposedly so asymptomatic or, you know, I think a a lot of what feeds into this is that children tend to be more asymptomatic than adults. Um, And so then my question is, are they, how many of these cases go unnoticed? And then does that change something about the statistics, right? If more, is it possible that more kids have it? And we just don't test them because they don't have symptoms as much. And so I think there's some evidence there. And then I think they they like to, some of the numbers that I've seen to break it down even further where it's like children under 12 are less likely. And then with like the age range from 12 to 18, there's, there's sort of an uptick there uh, so that it would make more sense to, you know, or that it would put the younger kids in that bracket in a little bit of a safer uh, group, I guess, but it's hard to know really with these statistics where they get them. And I mean, like this is a CDC, so they're not, you know, like they should be like mostly reliable, but I still, um, I still sometimes struggle with understanding exactly how the data is collected, who is being tested, what these percentages are. And I think for, you know, for somebody who doesn't have a background in science and who's never really done well with statistics, um, it's sometimes not super easy for me to follow 
um, exactly, you know, what am I looking at with these numbers? I agree 100% because coming from the humanities, we don't spend as much time with data, 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 right? But we live in this really data-driven world now, but it always depends on whether or not these are telling the whole part of the story. And I have heard, again, anecdotally, I have talked to so many people, and I think we talked about this before, where they said someone might have had a really bad cold or cough earlier on this year. January, February. Um, and if this is showing up in children differently than adults, how do we know that they have not already had it? Um, so I think right. that is uh, something that I've wanted to consider as well. And then secondly, and importantly, I want to talk a little bit about how the school year, and you kind of alluded to this already, how this might all play out. But then, so the children perhaps are more resilient or have a better immunity but children don't go to school all by themselves, right? So what about the teachers? What about the administrative assistants, the parapros, the principals, the vice principals, the people that work in the cafeteria? Um, those adults will remain constant. And so there's that's that question in my mind as well, because I've heard all different sorts of plans of how this year may play out. But even if the days are staggered, uh, perhaps some groups of children go on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the teacher is the same every day. So ostensibly the teacher could get ill and he or she could be the one in the classroom that, you know, ends up spreading it. And I mean, that's the scary part to me as someone who works in a classroom with adult learners. So I want to talk about that a little bit more as well. Um, since we do have people kind of listening around the world, I also kind of looked up and looked a little bit at how different people have been reopening the schools and what that looks like. It suggests that in some countries there were reduced class sizes, which makes a lot of sense. I've been hearing about increasing the physical distance between students and keeping students more in defined classes to reduce contact. The other point is then what I already said about kind of staggering attendance different start and stop times and creating this like alternating shifts uh, to enable social distancing. Now, this all sounds great to me, but when I look at the timeline, I'm just very curious about how this is all going to play out. It is, as we're recording this, almost the end of July. When does school start for you? And do you feel like we have enough time to put any of this into practice by then? That's my question, too. So I think the university uh, in town has moved their start date up very early. They're starting, I think, August 17th so that they don't have to. I think the idea is that they don't want to bring anybody back after Thanksgiving. So they want to wrap up the semester by then. And I believe that the public schools have lined up their start date with that. So it's either the 18th or something or like August 25th, maybe or something like that. So it's so we should be no more than like a month out of school starting. And still, you know, I got that email this week that said we are looking at these two completely different options that, you know, for me as a working parent, like that completely changes 100 percent what's possible for me and what what's feasible for me and what, you know, what my next three months are going to look like. Right. I got a similar email from um, my children's school and they do go to a smaller private school I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I mean, I, I'm fairly educated <laughs> and someone that makes a living doing reading. I just didn't exactly grasp what it was. And it was something to the effect of, we may do this. We have a variety of plans. It could be this. It could be this. Because the email subject line said, we can't wait to see you this fall. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. They made a decision. This is it. We are going to be in class this fall 
which did make sense for me because my daughter is in eighth grade. I think there's 14 students in her class. They can do that. You know, they have small class sizes there, which is sort of beneficial at this point. Um, My daughter never likes the idea of having such a small class. But in this case, this could be really (laughs) advantageous, right? Yeah. So uh, she she's always like, I wish there was more people in my class, but this could work. But we still don't really know. And that's my sense of like, it's getting really close. Um, And speaking from my point of view with four kids and getting ready, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I think we can speak more to that idea of like how that plays into our work roles. I was so happy when remote learning ended in May. I thought, okay, I can get a little bit back to my normal schedule. At least now I can work from home. I don't have to worry about all this other stuff I have to do with my kids now. They can kind of do their own thing. I just can't think about this long term. When I start to really think about it might not be three months. It could be six months. It could be a year. I don't want to go really negative, but it could be two years or four years. I mean, I, we just don't really know right now. And I can't right. I can't think of that long game because it makes my head hurt. And yeah. um, so, exactly. you know, there's there's a lot of that tied up there um, and a lot of things that we've been thinking about uh, related to all of this. Um, and I had some other questions, too, about like what this is going to look like. Did you have any research, any other, anything else you wanted to touch upon when we're thinking about reopening those plans? I mean, have I left anything out about what this might look like for school? Like I said, I just know the things that I know the things that I mentioned, like, you know, whatever one way, you know, traffic in the hallways is supposed to mean and like what what the rules are for recess. I really don't know. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I you know, for me, it was just so important, the idea of getting her back into a social environment. But now, you know, when I think about what that's going to look like. Uh, it seems, you know, with the distancing and the, and the, you know, the fewer people, uh, that I don't know, uh, that, you know, it's nice, it's nice for your, what you're saying about your school with the smaller class sizes. I think that's really, um, that would really be great. I doubt that that's possible at, at public schools, right? I think that if they were able to have smaller class sizes, they would already have them. Like exactly. that's always, that's always my that's my thought, right? Like if they can now figure out how to have smaller class sizes, I'm going to be really irritated because I'm going to wonder like why haven't we had those all along? Kind of thing. The the social element to me is just so important. I can I can kind of um or I can uh share what my son is going through. Uh my son is at a Montessori kindergarten and or Montessori school. Um, and he's, he would be like a preschooler now. And, um, so there, you know, the Montessori approach has really sort of like individualized activities and they kind of do their own work. And, and so for them, you know, when they first reopened after the quarantine in the spring, they made it very clear. They said, you know, for us and for our pedagogical approach, it was very simple to make the adjustments that we needed to make because our kids are already used to working but on their own a lot. But, you know, I ask him questions like now when he comes home from school, I say, who'd you sit next to at lunch? And he tells me I don't get to sit next to anybody. And it makes me so sad. And I know that that's, you know, what they're doing to keep our kids safe and to keep the school open. And it makes sense. But it just makes me so sad that all of these like social um, aspects are um, are taken away. And so um, that's difficult for me to really picture them in that environment. 
I think, too, so you're kind of touching upon some reasons why we want to keep this in-person instruction going, right? You've already sort of alluded to why you and I and other people find in-person instruction beneficial. Uh, We can talk a little bit more about how that plays into our job and work life. But I think there's one piece here which is really important that is in-person instruction for some children is like key. That is their safe space. That can be a place where they do receive some support. I think it's also really important, you probably already thought about this with your son, but the sense of routine, right? I think one of the hardest parts of all this is that our routine, our schedule has just been blown apart since this happened. There is no routine, and I don't like that. And I know going back to even having my first son, he was always a kid that just really liked that routine. Eat breakfast at the same time, get ready for school, brush your teeth, go. And it was just that I think can be very calming and very reassuring, especially for small kids, but I would assume the older adolescents as well. And so that is a reason why we want to keep um, people, one reason to keep the in-person instruction going. Does that speak to your children at all? Do they like that sense of routine? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been a it's been a lot better for my son since he's gone back to school. I 100% agree with that. I'm I need or I do a lot better when I have a reliable routine and I I can tell that they're my kids are looking for that um more actively. Like I can I can tell that they're testing their boundaries, that they're constantly checking is this does this rule still apply? Are we still doing things in this order? And, you know, the more we're kind of letting things slide and we're letting get things out of order and we're letting things sort of loosen up, the more they're acting out to reassess if those boundaries still exist. And so I definitely think that that's a huge benefit to having that structure um, and that place to be and that purpose, you know, that reason to get up in the morning. I think it's getting more and more difficult for my daughter to, you know, find that. Why should she get dressed? Like, why should she, you know, eat breakfast at a certain time? Why should you do all these things? Um, And then I think that's that can get you can get very lethargic if you don't have that that purpose and that routine. I agree. I mean, as an adult, I struggle with that. And even this is a little off topic, but we finally got to go to our dentist. And my hygienist told me that there is a thing called COVID mouth. And I said, oh, "Oh, that's awful. She said, yeah, well, since this has happened, people have just kind of stopped their routine. They have stopped taking care of their teeth. And she said, you know, oh. it's been three months and we've seen a very big decline in oral hygiene. And I think it is that sense of just kind of like, why? Who cares? Why do I need to brush my teeth? It doesn't matter, which to me sounds strange, very important in my life. But I can understand to a certain extent because there was all those jokes about not getting out of yoga pants or leggings. And I'm like, yep, 100%. If I don't have right. to go put on professional clothes, if I just if you just have to see my face in a Zoom meeting, I'm not going to, why would I do that? And I, But I miss some of that too. That was part of my routine, yeah. you know? And I do feel right. a sense of, I don't want to say, yeah, lethargic feelings, kind of why does it matter? Actually, you know, working from home, I'll throw that in, that I tend to uh, make sure that I, you know, even before the quarantine, I do tend to make sure that I, uh, that I get dressed in some like reasonable way and not work in my pajamas because it just puts you in a different mindset. Um, I feel like, you know, 
if I'm dressed to work, like, uh, you know, my, my work ethic is a little bit, is a little bit better. And I'm not saying everybody has to work that way, but it works that way for me. And I think if you, over the last three months, if people have, you know, stopped doing that, or if I had stopped doing that, I think that would have um, made it harder for me to, to really get that motivation and to keep myself moving in my job. So those sort of like regular routines and self maintenance, um, it takes a lot of self-discipline, but it pays off in the end. And I think so for sure for kids. It's, that's something that they still have to learn. I think. So those are great reasons. Those are some like very practical reasons to keep the schools or reopen the schools to -to face-to-face. I have some more research from the CDC, and I thought this was interesting. And I always kind of have to come back to this, that while you and I are well-poised, we probably had a lot of educational resources, being that we are in fields related to academia. We have books. We love books. You know, we have a lot of great things for our kids. It's not always the case for every child. And so the CDC says when schools are close to in-person instruction, disparities in educational outcomes could become wider, as some families may not have capacity to fully participate in distance learning. An example, computer and internet access issues, lack of parent, guardian, or caregiver support because of work schedules, and may rely on school-based services that support their children's academic success. The persistent achievement gaps that already existed prior to COVID-19 closures, such as disparities across income levels and racial and ethnic groups, could worsen and cause long-term effects on children's educational outcomes, health, and the economic well-being of families and communities. And that's a huge paragraph, but I think that is really key and critical to thinking about this, right? That those are the beacons of hope and light in some children's lives. Not only are they getting the educational um, foundation, but they're also getting support. In some cases, they're getting meals. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot to to consider with that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was just going to throw into that, you know, I at least here, I know that a lot of people rely on the schools for, for meals. That was one of the things that they immediately reinstated even during the quarantine. They figured out ways to get those meals out to kids. And I think that's really, that's really important to, to keep in mind. And as much as I struggle with having my kids at home and trying to keep them on schedule, I, and I was, you know, I was what during the first few weeks of the quarantine, I was furloughed. So and even then it was hard. So I was always thinking about, you know, how do other people here handle this? How do parents, how do parents handle this that can't stay home or that, can't work from home or that, you know, are working under different pressures or like you said, the access to internet's not there or whatever. Or yeah, I think from day one of this, I was concerned about the gap that was going to happen. And I just recently saw an article in the New York Times talking about pods that uh, families are forming. And I think um, in some ways, this is a very reasonable, reasonable approach. The way I understand it is just that you form groups with other families that then sort of create bigger um, quarantine bubbles, if you will. And so, uh, and that's already something that people are considering to, you know, get together with another family or two other families and say, you know, we're going to only interact with each other, but then there's no leaking towards outside of that 
little bit bigger bubble. So the kids can still have the social interaction, but we're still limiting, you know, the, the engagement that we have with sort of like the outside world, which makes sense to me. But then for, you know, if we, if we think about this in terms of homeschooling, it looks like in various different places. And I don't know if that's something that you've heard of people, families are getting together to create groups, um, where they're sharing the responsibility of virtual homeschooling and, and at certain times even hiring teachers to help them with that. And so that the, the person that was writing the, the article was very concerned about, you know, the way that that benefits some people more than others. So there's, there's a huge, um, there's a huge important role that schools play, I think, in, in supporting all children. And, and the same, you know, that's another, that's another thing to consider too. If people start pulling their kids out of the public schools, then that has direct impact on funding, of course, as well. So um, I do think that we have to be very, we have to figure that into that if we, if we are in a position where we can make a decision about this, those are all factors I think that um, we have to consider when we make these decisions. Right. And you speak about the pods and then idea. It's great in theory. But what if a child, again, does not have a parent or guardian or an advocate that's willing to step in and do that? What if they would like to do that, but they simply can't because of economic reasons and so forth? It sounds wonderful to hire a teacher who is a specialist, but not everyone would think of that. Not everyone would have access to that. And in our cases, when both husband and wife or both partners are working, we wouldn't be able, I remember reading about different babysitting co-ops and things of that. And I was never really able to participate actively because I was working. And so I love that idea of making a cooperative effort, but that's really contingent on, you know, one partner maybe being available for that. And I can't say that I can do that. And neither can my husband because he's doing his own work. So it sounds great, but I feel like that, again, could really create some levels of disparity. And as you said, the more people that are pulled out of the public system, the less funding it is. That's the case in the United States. I'd be curious to hear about how it goes on in the rest of the world, but that's how it works here in right. our state, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I was thinking about that earlier, actually, when we were, uh, when we were preparing for this. I, you know, in Germany, it just the just the idea that like you know whether or not you send your kid to school is an is a choice that is an option is uh, an interesting concept for me because that's not you know necessarily the case in other countries. I know that in Germany, you know if the schools are open, your kids just your kids go. Like there's no um, I don't know if that's different now with COVID, but that's you know the 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 entire sort of like homeschooling um, scene, if you will, in the United States is something that you won't find in countries like Germany. And so that whole concept that this is that school becomes like an option that we can consider or a choice that we have to make that we have to think about is really interesting to me. And that wasn't something that I had even considered until recently, you know, for me, it was like, okay, you know, the, the question was like, are the schools going to open? Then yeah, my kids are going to go. Are they not going to open? Then I'm going to have to figure that out. And then when I got this email this weekend, I was like, I guess I have a choice. And that wasn't something I had considered before. So um, it would be interesting definitely to hear from, uh, to hear from people that maybe aren't in the United States, if, if they're having similar thoughts and similar things to think about for sure. 
Right. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but it almost reminds me of the rhetoric about wearing the mask as in, yeah, it's my choice not to wear it. And that's just very bizarre American. I don't know what's up with that. But rather than thinking about the greater good, it's all about my rights as an individual. And I would say that is a very American sort of rhetoric uh, that goes back for a long time. So it's all quite strange. Now, moving forward, um, we're talking about being parents. What about the rest of our workplace? And I think it's interesting to think about your field, my field. Um, We've thought about this a little bit. What if no one goes back to school this fall? I don't want to put that. I don't want to put this all on your shoulders. But what is the contingency plan for the United States? What is the contingency plan for those of us that work in higher education? What does that look like? Did you want to speak to that a little bit? And then I can share like what I've heard about working in higher education so far. It doesn't seem like there is much of a plan, right? I mean, there's there doesn't seem to really be a plan B for working parents to help with uh, to help with that. Is that right? I mean, it's like either because what what's the other option? Are you, does everybody just hire their own? Um, do, does everybody hire their own caretaker, or you know, because you can't just then hire a nanny. Like if you are going to hire somebody, you need to also have a tutor or something like that for each of your children. At which point, like it just becomes economically completely unviable or potentially. Okay, so here's another question then, and I know you thought about this a little bit already. What if we open, but then we have to quarantine again? Or what if we open for a little bit? I mean, have you thought about that scenario at all? And how does that make you feel? So that's something that I that I'm completely stressed out about because so, yeah, so this and this seems to be like a very accepted fact that like if we go back to school, there's going to be outbreaks and if somebody is sick, then or if somebody actually um, has the has COVID, then there will be two week quarantines for everybody that was near that person, which I guess, you know, that makes that makes sense. But then what about other illnesses? Right. So like as soon as we go back to school, people will also then catch kids just are always catching something and then they have a fever for a day. So like every time somebody has a fever, do they have to stay home for two weeks or do they have to stay home for 72 hours? Is there still like the 24 hour rule that if you're, if you're fever free for 24 hours, you can come back to school. What's the, what's the rule? What's the rule going to be like, you know, how, how frequently is it going to happen? And is it going to overlap between the two kids that are in two different institutions? Is it going to be, you know, and you have four, you know, so so that even makes it possibly even more difficult. Or then, you know, if if one kid has to quarantine, do all four of them have to quarantine? Like, I don't even know how this works. I have no idea how that's supposed to work. And it and it really does stress me out because it sounds like it's going to be a, a year of, you know, I you know, I know I can I'm home by myself this week, but I don't know yet what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. Um, that's for me personally is not great circumstances to to work under. Uh, that's yeah. kind of like I was thinking about this as well, because earlier in the week, I have been able to make a couple of appointments here and there. Um, I doctor, they are taking temperatures and I showed up as 99.5. 
And I'm like, what the heck? Because the day before I was at the orthodontist and I was 97. I usually run pretty cold, apparently. But I thought about this because I think it was it was about 95 degrees. It was quite warm. I was wearing a cloth mask, and I think that might have like overheated me a bit as well. They let me come in because the cutoff for that particular establishment is 100 degrees. But I felt like I was telling a fib because I'm like, no, I feel fine. I swear. I think I'm just um, either overheated from being outside. There are other moments in a woman's life where you can be slightly higher in temperature depending on your cycle. But I just felt like I was and I'm like, no, you know, I swear I feel fine. But I felt like I was being that person to try and say, oh, you know, trying to cover something up. But then I started thinking about, well, what happens if this is during a school day? And the schools that my kids go to, they're on point. If my child comes to them and says, oh, I'm not feeling well, and they take their temperature and they're 99, they're home right away. I'm getting a phone call. And like you said, kids always have these bugs. They're always catching little things. So I'm just trying to imagine what this new landscape is going to look like, like you said. And what if the thermometer is off just a little bit? And can people be a little slightly hot for a moment or two and then go back down, especially when it's 95 degrees. Their school doesn't have an air conditioning system. So I wonder, I was just thinking how this plays out. And then when I get to my classes at the college level, I believe we're going to have a security guard or someone in that role, maybe some sort of health personnel taking temperatures. But what if the person is 99? I'm still probably going to feel uncomfortable, to be quite honest, if I find out that someone, you know, showed up and they have 100 degrees, but they're not 100.4 because that's our cutoff. So that's going to, is that going to set the rest of the class, you know, in a a state of panic? How do we police that as professors? How do I make sure that my adult students are following the rules? Just like a lot of people talk about children playing with their masks and this and that. Yeah. Honestly, my kids have been pretty compliant because... I feel so terrible, but they're terrified. They don't want to get it. You know, my seven-year-old has cried about this. So she follows the rules pretty well. Although whenever we go somewhere and she has a mask on, she's constantly playing with it and touching it. And I'm trying to tell her, don't touch your face. That's the whole point of this silly thing. You know, keep it on. And she's touching and playing. So I have a lot of those questions as well. And that's the kind of things that keep me up a little bit at night and thinking about our kids too. um, So they are sort of looking forward possibly to going back to school as much as my kids during the school year are like, ah, I don't really want to go. I think both of our families have sort of thought, oh, this might be nice to get back to this. But then again, what happens if they do start and then they have to leave in two weeks? So have your children been excited about going back at all? My daughter is very excited. She started talking about going back to school probably like two or three weeks ago. And she's talking about her friends that she's missing. And so the way that the schools are set up here in my district is that the elementary school is broken up and they all the they have a lower and, a, and an upper uh, elementary school. So she's actually switching schools this summer, which is oh. not my favorite thing. But it's a, she'll be all right. She's had, you know, she's had rough um she has a history of rough uh, things happening each year, and she's pretty resilient. She's made it through a ton. But, yeah, she's definitely talking about, you know, being with her friends again and hoping that, you know, what she, she, she was talking about her friend the other day, and she hopes that they're, like, next in, you know, next to each other in the in the lineups and things like that. And then I was reading the, the email and just, 
you know, was thinking, well, you know, who knows if you're even going to be lining up at all? Are you going to be six feet apart all the time? Or so she is really excited. She is an extrovert. So this is very difficult for her to just not be able to socialize with other kids. And so um, for her to, you know, yeah, she's excited, but she's excited to have recess time with her friends and she's excited to socialize with her friends. And so to have to, to, I don't know what's going to happen when she realizes like what this is going to require of her. Um, we have not really worked on wearing masks because I don't take them anywhere. They're home. And so I haven't really practiced wearing masks with her at all. Um, and she tends to be, um, she's very fidgety. So yeah, I'm very nervous about her actually wearing her mask and not just chewing on the elastic and things like that. At the, at the same time, I also, like I said, she's had some really difficult things happen, like difficult just scenarios uh, in the past that she maneuvered really, really well. Uh, she is pretty resilient. And I sometimes I'm kind of hopeful that once the kids are back at school and they learn all of their new rules, that that that's just how it is and that they'll figure it out and that they'll work within that. Like, the masks are my biggest worry, but the, you know, like what, like the, like if you think of it, like take the example of like the one way hallway traffic, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's just going to be one of those rules that they're going to drill into them, you know, day, day, the first week, just like all the other rules that they drill into them when they start school. And then that's just what they do. I think that's not going to be that big a, big a deal. The, the mask is my biggest concern, I think. Right. And in some ways, I think children are better at following those rules than adults because they're still open to it. They're new. It's this new school year. And I talked to you a little bit about this is usually a real fun time for us. It doesn't matter <laughs> who the student is in my family. We yeah. like going and picking out the pencils, the pens. And I'll be honest, I was a big fan of that when I was that age as well, because I I loved school, you know, like, of course, you got two academics here who probably love picking out their pens and pencils and markers. And I just it was so for me, it's really associated with like some warm memories. But that's because my parents were an advocate for me and they had the means to do that. We are also advocates for our children and enjoy doing that kind of thing with them. But when we think about other families, they might not have those opportunities or the means to even do that. So I will, I did buy the stuff. I don't know if we'll use it or not. So that's a little bit sad for me as well. Right. And um, did moving, you just oh yeah, buy, go ahead. Sorry. Did you just buy what you know you need to get or did the school send out lists? We have a list. They send it out actually in May. And because we are a smaller school, there's a whole thing that you can do with like buying it through this company, which supposedly gives some of the money back to the school. I don't ever usually use it. But at the time, I think I was just like really trying to do some wish fulfillment, like, okay, if I buy all this, they're going to need it because, (laughs) right, we actually have a ridiculous uh, collection of pencils, crayons, pencils, the works, we have everything. So we probably didn't need to buy as much as we did. But I think in my mind, I was like, if I buy it, they'll use it. And so I'm, I'm putting that out there because I am an educator. I think I said this last time or before, but people have said to me, wow, well, you're a professor. So this like teaching at home should be really a piece of cake for you. And they said to Ernie, my husband, yeah, you're so lucky, man. You know, your wife, she's got that PhD. I'm like, 
that's a PhD in American literature. Okay. So far, you know, post-structuralist theory has not come up into the eighth grade uh, rubrics. Although my student, my, my kids have gotten really good feedback on their essays. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder why. But anyway, so far, you know, Derrida has not entered the conversation when they're reading The Outsiders or one of these books. And here's the thing. I am an educator. But I work with adult students, and there is usually a sort of, I don't know, they they tend to respect me a little bit more. My kids are used to me. I'm their mom. So I just don't know. I think I bought all that school supply, just really hoping they go back because they're they're educators. That's what they went to school for, is to work with K through 12 students. That's not what I went to college for. So I don't have that background. I don't even think, I'm going to put it out there, I don't have the patient that those wonderful educators do. I'm just not as patient. I'm used to working with adult students who have a different mindset, who have a different sort of sense of responsibility. I just don't know that I can move on in the same way I did the last time. I'm going to have to set up some sort of different scheduling. Um, And so I think that this idea that parents can just shift to this role of K through 12 educator is not valid. It's it's tacking something on that that we just I think most of us probably just can't accomplish. It is so it is everything becomes a battle, I feel like, you know, and it's just you're adding on a whole nother set of battles. Kids tend sometimes when I go to parent teacher conferences or I talk to the adults that are dealing with my kids and they tell me like how wonderfully they cooperate and they participate, I think they're not even how are you talking about? Are you sure you're talking about my kid? Right? I think probably most parents have had that experience. I think it's just um, it's just different. And kids are so reluctant to take. um, I mean, my daughter is very reluctant to take any sort of advice from me or any sort of um, hint from me. If somebody else does it, she's way more open to it. Um, And then there's all of the other battles that I'm already fighting with her. There are all the other things that I'm already trying to work on with her, right? Like we already talked about, like, let's, you know, get dressed, stay healthy, go outside. You know, what's a reasonable amount of screen time? What is a regular bedtime? And how do we maintain that, right? All of those things are already things that I have to enforce. And then to add, like, you know, you have to do this many minutes of, you know, Khan Academy and you have to do this many minutes of reading and you have to do this. Many, like, it's just it's just too much. And, and something is going to give. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know, um, you know, if I have to make sure that she does all that homework, then there's going to be other things that are going to be falling by the wayside. And so I do think that it's important. It's it's so good that we have that we have usually have the ability to send them to school and have experts help us with, you know, with their learning just to add a whole, that whole other role onto all of the things that we already do anyway. I think, um, I don't think anybody benefits from that. And again, like that's, it's easy to say, you know, when there's this disease out there that's, that can be very awful and very harmful to have. And I think, you know, um, this is all sort of coming from from a position where, you know, we have the luxury of there aren't that many cases in our area and the threat isn't that huge. Um, so I think everybody has to kind of weigh that, you know, depending on where they live and what their what their health risks are and things like that. But generally speaking and for speaking from that safe position, I think 
uh, there's just so many benefits to being able to send the kids to in-person instruction. Right. And that kind of, so we've really been speaking about why we want school. And I think there are millions of parents that are sort of feeling that same sense of conflicted feelings about this that we are because we want it. We see the value. We are people who are in academia. Of course, we see the value in education and having specialists and having the services for any student that might have learning disabilities or have special needs. The teachers there are prepared to help assist with that. But there are people out there, of course, and I'm one of them as well. Well, I don't want them to go back if it's not safe. And so you had kind of pointed me in the direction of this list of it's 15 honest AF reasons. One of my favorite phrases these days um, that at home learning next year is right for my family. And this came from the scary mommy yeah, Instagram yeah. or blog. And so yeah. uh, it had a lot of good reasons. I don't know if you wanted to like think about a few of these before we kind of wrap things up, but there are a lot of good reasons here. I want to put the disclaimer on this though, that this is from a certain perspective and a certain point of view, right? That not everyone will always have the means to say, you know what? I definitely can work with my student at home. If we think about economics and jobs and working and single parents and all those other factors that might play a role, I would say that the scary mommy post is coming from probably a relatively good position of being able to provide these things for the family, if that makes sense. Yeah. And being able to make that choice, right? That's kind right. of, that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I feel like, you know, the, the idea that, 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 you know, we have a choice of sending our kids back to school or not. I don't think that's a choice that's probably available to everybody. So, no. you know, being able to, and but you know the the author of the article acknowledges that too at some point um but that's definitely to to be able to to think uh, to think of it from both sides is is right. a luxury um for sure but there are some there are some things that i definitely on that list that i have definitely thought about and that i have definitely um considered the you know the the one thing that I've already kind of talked about a lot that's on this list is the is the wearing of the masks. I just um, I want to be very clear that like I am not a person to say that like masks don't do their jobs. I think it's very important that we all wear masks in this situation that we're in, and I always wear a mask when I go out. But having to wear a mask makes me not want to go out if that makes sense. So like I stay home, like knowing that I have to wear a mask when I go somewhere makes me want to stay home uh, because I just, I'm very uncomfortable with um, uh, not being able to see other people's faces, like all of it and communicating with people in that way. I think it, for me, it takes away a little bit of sort of that interpersonal connection that we have um, with other people uh, I know that not everybody feels that way. My husband, for example, does not agree with me on that point. Um, he thinks it's, uh, you know, he, he says like, just, you know, just wear your mask and don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Um, and so, so, but that's one of the points that really spoke to me when I was looking through the list. Um, I don't know if, uh, um, if there were any that spoke specifically to you. Um, well, just as a jumping off point, Going to the eye doctor was an eye-opening experience, no pun intended, but keeping the mask on for the full hour and a half 
I understand why people don't like wearing them that long. And I am being so, again, thank you to all the people that are working out there that have these things on for 12 and 16 and 18 hours a day because it was an hour and a half and I was sweaty. And because I was getting my eyes checked, it's so ridiculous, but I felt like it was starting to fog up the um, lenses they Mm -hmm. were checking. And I just felt very uncomfortable. And I actually agree with you. I was thinking of my ethos as an educator and a lot of my movement and gesturing. People never say I'm a boring instructor. I have a lot of passion, but I also make (laughs) a lot of animated faces. I (laughs) use a lot of gestures and I feel like that's lost when I have my mask. And I feel like I'm always the kind of person to offer someone a smile. They can't tell if I'm smiling under my mask. I might just seem grouchy. It's it's right. like trying to read between the lines of a text message and all you're seeing is this blank. So I actually agree with you and I don't like that part of it. Um, what resonated here for me is actually something that is worrisome, but it's a second point. It says we really don't know the long-term effects of COVID on kids. And there's so much data we already pointed to from the CDC that says, well, doesn't seem to be affecting children in the same way it affects adults. That being said, I read some really startling and upsetting article about two or three months ago about these strange symptoms showing up in some kids. I think it was in New York where they didn't initially show up as sick, but then they're having like really awful respiratory symptoms. And I think in some cases, even some organ failure and things like that. So that to me is the part of it that scares me. We really still don't know that much about this virus. And it seems like every day I read a headline where there's some new and weird and strange symptom or side effect. And so these are my kids. They're my you know, they're my babies, they're my lifeblood. So it's hard for me. I really have to sort of resign myself to like, okay, but if it's not safe, I'm just going to have to make the sacrifice and suck it up, you know, and have them at home because ultimately I want to make sure my kids are safe and healthy. And that was one point she brought up there. Like we still don't know a lot about this even now. Right. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately, the, you know, the article was uh, insightful in the fact that she just, or I assume it's a, I assume it was a female author, um, is ultimately concluding that like it was her gut that, um, right, that she went with, right? She just, um, she thought it over from from both sides, and once once um, that decision was finally made, like she she felt a lot better, and I think that's ultimately it. It feels like everybody has to sort of come to their own conclusion, which is so strange. I'm not usually somebody to to take that route. I think this is going to be really. It's. I think it will be very strange to take the sort of um, mainstreaming out of education. I think I usually am very much like in support of going with you know when it comes to you know following following rules in school and things like that to to make sure that my kids know that they have to go with what you know what the main guidance is but it seems like this is different and it it seems like this is something where everybody kind of has to has to figure it out on their own which is really strange right and that kind of speaks to another point that was made where um, the column says I find it hard to trust that other kids will abide by the safety rules to me, it's not even so much about the other children, but the other families, because as she notes, you know, there are still people that think this is all a hoax and that masks yeah. are for, quote, sissies, uh, end quote. I've heard them, I've heard stronger and rougher language than that. And I do know people firsthand that don't think this is real or think it's stupid or think masks are worthless. 
So to me, it's not even about trusting the child. I'm not going to put that on them. But like, what are their families doing? Have they been following the protocol? And I'd like to think in my little community that everyone's doing it. But as we know, there are a lot of people, you can see posts on social media, we can see how the, the numbers are back up in Michigan in our home state to know that not everyone is probably being as diligent as you are keeping your kids away from stores and places like that. So to me, that's the other kind of scary point is that we can know that we're doing everything right, but we don't know what other factors are out there. We don't know who's been in, where they've been really, right? And if they've been following the protocol and if they were recently in a hotspot. And that's the part that I find a little bit terrifying. And that's been the scariest part, I think, for me from day one, which is, even going to the grocery store, I was thinking about how the first time I went after the whole shutdown and my the young lady who was bagging my groceries kept coughing and sniffing and I nearly I nearly left <laughs> yeah. everything behind because she just kept sniffing and coughing and Oh, I came home and I was, I said, I literally washed my bananas. Like who does that? They're already in a natural covering. Right. Yeah. So that level of paranoia has not necessarily left me. And I think that's, and so that part of this list speaks to me as well. But knowing again, that not everyone has a luxury of deciding whether or not their child can stay home with them if they have to work. We still don't really know what the future holds for any of us as far as work life, work-life balance. And so in future episodes, I think it would be a really great idea if we started to talk about now the academic end of things. We've talked about how this might affect our roles as parents, but what is this all going to look like this fall for academics? Do you think that's something we should talk about next? Absolutely. I think that would be very interesting. I'm really curious to hear how people are approaching the next semester and what the different um, what the different colleges are doing. I just recently was in touch with my babysitter who is a, a college student here at the local college and she was telling me a little bit about what their different models are for the classes that they're going to do, um, the mixed the mixed approach, the optional, the in-person, the completely online. So um, I would be very interested in hearing more about how um, you as, a, as an educator are getting ready for the semester um, and how you're balancing that out with the demands that you have as a parent. So I think there's a lot more to talk about here, actually, than we were able to cover today. Well, that's great. And I think we can do that. And we'll share what we're reading next time because you and I are both kind of still working on a few things that we can share and maybe some potential hacks as we move toward the back to school season. So signing off once again, you can contact us via Gmail at PhD and Parenting Podcast. What have your experiences been like preparing for fall and back to school? In our next episode, we promise to share share some helpful hacks about the back to school season. And Judith, again, the master of social media, the expert, where can they find us on Instagram? The Instagram handle is PhD in parenting. Yes. And we'd love to hear how, what, you know, other schools, what are other schools doing or what are your schools doing? How are you, um, how are you thinking about this? Are you seeing this as a choice to make and what factors are going into your decision-making process? Um, I'd love to hear from from everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks again. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future.